Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I'm in a bad place to start this podcast because, well, number one, I've got safety dance stuck in my head. Sorry about that. And I haven't been sleeping too well. No, we think it's the altitude. I think so, because I have a hard time falling asleep. And then when I do fall asleep, I have bizarre nightmares uh, or just strange, not nightmares, just weird dreams. As I'm falling asleep last night, though, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to move furniture to our new apartment and we don't have a car. Mm -hmm. You'll be happy to know, though, that I did figure out a way I could strap a large floor lamp to my back while riding a scooter. So I got the floor lamp issue covered. Wow, that's great. I know the last time we were here, I had a really hard time sleeping and we attributed that to the altitude. So I guess it's just your turn. And the dream I had last night... So bizarre and vivid. Maybe if any of you guys are dream analysis type people, you can uh, you can tell me what this might mean. I know, Kat, you're pretty good at that, actually. I was on a bicycle. I was riding a bicycle. Did you have a floor lamp strapped to your back? No, but I was backstage at a theater. Somehow I mistakenly rode my bike onto the stage while a live magic act was going on. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) And the magician and his assistant looked at me and they were very angry. Oh, no. And then they turned into demons. Well, they were angry. And they forced me to eat can after can of beefaroni. Then I woke up. Yeah, that is perplexing. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe somebody has some answers for me because I'm a curious kind of guy (laughs) and I haven't eaten beefaroni for 20 years, nor would I have any desire. Maybe that was my punishment. They were demons after all. Sure. Also, we've been rewatching The Good Place, so maybe that had something to do with it. I bet it did. We are splitting our time between The Good Place and Suits. Obviously, we are seeking comfort. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Visiting old friends, if you will. (laughs) You got a story for me? Well, yes, ma'am, I do. 
I don't know what just happened there. Wow, yeah. you got very Southern. I did, sort of, kind of. <clears throat> My apologies to the Southern culture. In the vast area of the supernatural, one particular phenomenon has intrigued, unsettled, and fascinated individuals for centuries across many cultures. Crisis apparitions. Is this kind of like a third man type deal? Well, I, I think you could probably group third man encounters into the crisis apparitions category. Okay. Unmistakable experiences, and they often arrive unannounced, wrapped in mystery and emotional intensity at the very brink of life-altering events. Like the butterfly people. That could also fit in. Yeah, I think all of those things could be defined as uh, crisis apparitions. But this particular part of the genre is frequently associated with death, danger, and severe distress. And they are typically connected closely to the person involved in the crisis. In other words, Something happens during a crisis or a moment of extreme emotional intensity, and the crisis apparition that they have involves a loved one or a good friend or something like that. Now, are these mere coincidences? Yeah. Are they results? Are they the results of a heightened emotional state, or are they something much more mysterious? Let's take a look at some firsthand accounts. These personal narratives do shed some light on the mysterious, downright eerie occurrences, but also beautiful occurrences that challenge our understanding. The first one involves a woman named Nina DeSanto. It was a chilly winter evening. Light was just starting to dim. It was it was twilight, the gloaming. The gloaming, if you, yeah, if you will. The gloaming, as I like to call it. <laughs> and Nina was preparing to shut down her New Jersey hair salon. As she neared the door, an unexpected figure emerged in the glass of the uh, salon's entryway. It was a guy named Michael. Now, Michael was one of her clients. He was a quiet guy, and he'd become a regular customer. He was a shell of his former self after life dealt him some pretty relentless blows. He had just gone through a painful divorce that uh, had left him at the mercy of a, a, an extremely unkind twist of fate. His wife had left him for his stepbrother, and in the legal battle that followed, he lost custody of his two children. Mm. So he was having a rough time. Nina had become his confidant, offering him more than just haircuts. She lent him a sympathetic ear. He needed somebody to talk to. And, and sadly, she was the only one in his life that would listen. So she offered him words of encouragement. And, and she actually invited him out for drinks to attempt to bolster his spirits. That Saturday evening, as the door creaked open, Michael stood there. His face broke into a warm smile. He said, quote, Nina, I can't linger. I simply needed to express my gratitude for your support. Their conversation was brief and cordial before Michael bid his farewell and vanished into the night, leaving Nina to lock up and go home. The following day, an odd call from an employee rattled Nina. Michael's lifeless body had been discovered on Saturday morning, a grim reality that placed his encounter with Nina at least nine hours post-mortem. What had happened to him? Sadly, he uh, chose to take his own life. Now, the question, of course, then arose, if Michael had already passed, who, or rather what, had Nina interacted with that fateful night? Quote, so I'm guessing. What? Swamp gas. 
Yep, ball lightning. (laughs) She later reflected on this encounter that took place in 2001. She said, quote, it felt uncanny. It was hard to believe. How do you explain seeing a man as solid and as real as any engaging in conversation when he's no longer of this world? So stories like DeSantos are not that uncommon. For example, over four decades ago, an uncanny event occurred that left such an indelible impression on Sima Lieberman that it remains fresh in her memory to this day. She's now a renowned diversity consultant operating out of Albany, California. She was a young woman in the throes of love in the late 60s during the hippie generation. Her beloved, a man named Johnny, was a gentle soul, a quintessential hippie with a heart overflowing with kindness. A man who was agreeable, he had an agreeable nature. Lieberman was Johnny's love And it was the kind of love that dreams were made of. So profound, they decided to share an apartment. And they started talking about getting married. Well, one fateful night, Lieberman was back in the Bronx visiting her mother. She was staying at her mother's place, and she received an unexpected phone call. On the other end was Johnny. His voice was hurried and distant, barely discernible through the constant crackling static. I just want to let you know that I love you. And I'll never be mean to anybody again. And then more static filled the air before the connection abruptly ended, leaving Lieberman with nothing but a dial tone. That would be so disconcerting. Excuse me, what? What, what, what? It reminds me of that Twilight Zone episode where this woman kept getting calls from uh, a dead relative and they went to the cemetery and the power line, the telephone line had fallen off the line and was laying cross his grave Mm -hmm. yeah anyway her attempts to return the call were futile next morning brought an unexplainable sense of unease for her a gut feeling that she struggled to articulate an eerie sensation of johnny's presence no longer being there then came heartbreaking news she said a few hours later my mother called me to inform me johnny had been killed the previous night johnny's life was brutally cut short by a bullet that ended his life instantly as he sat in his car that night. It was just random violence. Lieberman is convinced that Johnny reached out to her posthumously, not through a ghostly figure or perhaps a familiar scent, but a telephone call, a crisis apparition in its most unusual form. Why would he say that he would never be mean to anyone again? That's a great question. Nobody really knows. Maybe... He had said something to somebody that wasn't, in his mind, kind, and that triggered the person to attack him. Maybe. I I don't know, but it's just one of those things. And I think those are the parts of stories like this that are the most disturbing because, you know, what? The unanswered questions. Yeah, like the doppelganger uh, story with Percy Shelley when uh, his doppelganger said, how long are, do you plan to be content? Mm. What the hell does that mean? That was very foreboding. So over the years, she has examined and dismissed plausible alternatives. Could he have called just before or during the fatal incident? Mm. Unlikely. It was a time before mobile phones. It was the late 60s. And it's improbable that the perpetrator allowed him to use a payphone. He couldn't have called after being shot because he died instantly. 
It wasn't until years later when Lieberman stumbled upon an article about others receiving mysterious, static-laden calls from deceased loved ones that the puzzle pieces, at least in her mind, started to fit together. Right. Johnny, in her opinion, was reaching out from beyond the veil to bid her a final farewell. She said, uh, the, f- the entire experience was so surreal, I could never comprehend it. A similarly mystifying incident left Josh Harris questioning reality. The story revolves around his relationship, a cherished relationship, with his grandfather, Raymond Harris. Now, Josh was the first grandchild, so he shared a unique bond with Raymond. They spent innumerable hours together, fishing, doing yard work, and cherishing the tranquility of small-town life of Hacklesburg, Alabama. They were virtually inseparable, a familiar duo in the neighborhood, if you will. That's so sweet. Sadly, their joy was cruelly interrupted in 1997 when Raymond was diagnosed with lung cancer, with the prognosis giving him only mere weeks to live. Josh was 12 at the time, and he would pay nightly visits to his ailing grandfather. On the final night that he visited his grandfather, he wanted to stay, but his family urged him to return to his house, which was just a couple of miles away. In the dead silence of the night, around 2 a.m., Josh woke up abruptly from his slumber on the couch. To his surprise, his grandfather was standing there, looking at him. Harris said, I was taken aback initially. I was puzzled. Why was he in the hallway rather than in his own house with everyone else? Then his grandfather communicated with him. He just gazed at me, offered me a comforting smile, and reassured, quote, Everything will be okay. As his grandfather turned and began walking toward the kitchen, Harris rose to follow him but was abruptly interrupted by the ring of the telephone. Now his aunt, who was in another room, picked up the phone. When I spun back around, Harris said, my grandfather had vanished. His aunt emerged and sadly announced, Josh, your papa is gone. Despite Harris's insisting that his grandfather had just been there reassuring him, it took him an entire day to come to terms with the devastating reality of his grandfather's passing. Truth be told, he said, I had no belief in the paranormal before that incident. I assumed it was all hoaxes and fabrications, but I was just awakened and I saw him. It could not have been an illusion. He looked as solid as ever. For years after his grandfather's passing, one particular detail from the night still lingers in his memory. As he watched his grandfather stride toward the kitchen, he noticed something odd. Quote, It seemed like he was enveloped in a soft, whitish glow. Let's get back to our first story for a moment. Nina DeSanto. Okay. She's the proprietor of that hair salon in New Jersey. Now, her experience was very profound, and it had a huge impact on her that uh, led her subsequently to join the Eastern Pennsylvania Paranormal Society, which is an organization committed to investigating paranormal phenomena. She recounted the meticulous process she went through to corroborate the timeline of Michael's demise. She consulted Michael's family members and scrupulously examined a coroner's report, which determined the time of his death as Friday night, nearly a full day before his apparition appeared at her salon on Saturday night. 
According to DeSanto, Michael's body was found by his cousin at around 11 a.m. on Saturday, slumped over the kitchen table, the victim of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Mm. She was so bewildered by the experience early on, but she has since developed a hypothesis. Quote, often when an individual suffers a tragic death, they're left with a considerable degree of turmoil or guilt. I don't believe they depart this world immediately. They, they linger. I think he felt he had unfinished business. He needed to bid farewell. And bid farewell he did, according to DeSanto. This is her recollection of their final interaction. As they conversed at the entrance of the shop, she noted that they never made physical contact, not even a handshake, which they always, almost always did. Yet, nothing about his appearance or demeanor seemed too out of the ordinary, no ethereal voice, no translucent figure, and certainly no I see dead people sensation. However, DeSanto pointed out two particular details she observed at the time that she could not make sense of later. Upon initially opening the door to welcome Michael, she recalled experiencing an unsettling shiver. Moreover, she noticed a slight grayish pallor on his face. Another anomaly was his refusal to step inside the shop when she held the door open. He simply engaged her in small talk before eventually expressing, Thanks again, Nina. Then, with a smile on his face, he turned and vanished into the winter night. Now, these stories all share a common thread, individuals encountering apparitions of those recently departed, leading to moments of profound bewilderment and deep introspection. You know what this reminds me of? What? Pascal. He said he was trying to help me because daddy was trying to help him when his soul was dis, dis, discorporated. Keep the shovels away from Lewis. A man's heart is stonier, Lewis. So what might be the cause of these uncanny encounters? There's a compelling case to be made that they may be of supernatural origin. I mean, what are the other explanations? There are none, sweetie. Yeah, I was going to say. No, it's pretty much that's the only option. No, our understanding of reality and consciousness is largely uncharted. I think we can all agree on that. We exist in a universe where quantum physicists do assert that particles can be in multiple places at one time, mm -hmm. and black holes can theoretically act as gateways to other universes. A stargate, if you will. Yes, Thus, it might not be too far-fetched to propose that the essence of consciousness or a person could linger. Remember, energy can't be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And this energy could even interact with the living post-mortem. These apparitions are often driven by a need to communicate to complete unfinished business, implying that emotional connections and concerns could transcend physical death. It's also important to note that none of these examples, and this tracks with a large percentage of these experiences, were threatening or scary in any way. These are loved ones or people that were cared about that were coming to say goodbye and express their gratitude. So not all ghosts are demons that will force you to eat beefaroni. Right, no, right. that's... I think the lesson to be learned here, skeptics may attribute these encounters to psychological phenomena such as bereavement hallucinations, which is a real thing. The apparitions appearances and their seemingly aware and intentional interactions point towards something, something other than that, something beyond our current understanding of reality. Now, I got my information mostly from the, a great article in CNN, but also from Psychology Today and Wikipedia. 
Yes, you can call these ghost stories, but this type of ghost story has its own category. Mm. And that category is crisis apparitions. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer and now that thing in the middle the 1994 comedy baby's day out is as popular in india as star wars is in the western world it's been remade twice in india and for some reason the second remake is called james bond we got an email from christina Birds 100% do fart. They totally fart. I have over 100 birds of various types. They don't all fart, 
But ducks, pigeons, and some chickens totally fart. Geese, I'm sure, fart, too. They just seem like the farting type. (laughs) Don't you think? Honking from both sides? Geese. Oh, I gotta read you this one. This, This email just came in today. Cat and Jethro, this story is mainly for Jethro, as I know he is a Civil War buff like me. My name's Dwayne. I grew up in eastern North Carolina. I'm 61 now, and I live in the house that my grandparents raised three children in, including my father. In 1974, a great aunt died, and while cleaning out her house, my brother and I found a shoebox of old letters. Turns out, they were letters her mother received from her husband, from the time he enlisted in Company C, 27th North Carolina Infantry in Kinston, North Carolina, until the time he was killed at the Battle of Sharpsburg or in Tetum, depending upon whether you wore gray or blue, I guess. He was my maternal great-great-grandfather, Private Henry Sutton. My parental great-great-grandfather, Bartholomew Fields, what a Great name that is. Also served in Company C, 27th North Carolina Infantry. He survived the Battle of Sharpsburg, but lost a leg in the conflict. We'd always heard stories about how he got around with one leg. Of course, I never met him. He died in 1900 at the age of 57. About 10 years ago, my brother received an email from a relative who was also a Civil War buff and was visiting the National Museum of Civil War Medicine in Frederick, Maryland, which we have not been to yet. Idiots. It contained a photo of our great-great-grandfather Bartholomew's leg bone. What? We never knew. (laughs) As I'm typing this, the hair on my arms are standing on end. Just wanted to share this oddity with you. Love the podcast. I just recently discovered it, and I'm on episode 195. It's easy to binge, as I'm a forklift operator, and my ass is in it for about eight hours a day. (laughs) Love ya. Mean it. And, uh... It's signed Dwayne, and then parentheses, his nickname, R-E-B-Y-L-L. That's a bastardization of Rebel Yell, is what he says. I see. So I wrote him back, and I said, that's awesome. Have you been to visit your grandfather's leg? <laughs> and he What a wrote, weird sentence. Yep. Yeah, and he says, no, I've not been there. My brother did before he passed in 2020. He marched in there and boldly proclaimed, I believe you're holding my ancestor's leg bone hostage in Yankee territory. <clears throat> The curator said it was the first time anybody had visited there that was actually related to anyone who was exhibited. That must have been a cool day for them, too. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, thanks for that email. That's amazing. Oh, and he sent a photo. Do you want to see his grandfather's leg bone? Yes, please. Wow. Crazy, right? I like how there's also a diagram to show you which part of his leg it is. (laughs) Yep. There's a little uh, cartoon shell blast indicating that location on his shin. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to the Box of Oddities. The question is, why? Okay, what you got? The forerunner of the motion picture film projector was called the kinetoscope, and it was invented by William Dixon uh, and Thomas Edison in 1891. In it, a strip of film was passed rapidly between a lens and an electric light bulb with the viewer peering through a peephole. So if you wanted to watch a whole like feature film it would have been really uncomfortable because you'd have to like put your eye on the thing and you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you're putting your eye on the microphone. Let me just gently remind you that people can hear that. They can't see what you're doing. They probably can't hear it either. I'm, no. just, I'm just saying that this is how you'd have to watch a movie. <laughs> oh, I got, now I got my glasses dirty. That Yeah, those were like uh, coin uh, mechanized, coin operated uh, vending machines, amusements at the time. You you still see them around um, in collectors or actually there is one in the train station at uh, Magic Kingdom at Disney. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. At first, films were very short. Sometimes they were only a few minutes or less and they were shown at fairgrounds, music halls and anywhere that a screen could be set up and a room darkened. By 1894, the kinetoscope was a commercial success and public parlors were established around the world. The first to present projected moving pictures to a paying audience were the Lumiere brothers in December of 1895 in Paris. They had filmed a number of short scenes with their invention, the cinematograph. <laughs> when in doubt. <laughs> Just let the machine do it. In 1896, a groundbreaking film called La Fée au Chaud. The Fairy of the Cabbages was released, making a significant milestone in cinematic history. It was directed and edited by Alice Guy, and this film is widely considered to be the earliest narrative film ever made. What was it called? Le Fait au Chaud. I think you want to look at it? It's got some X's and stuff in it. The Fairy and the Cabbages. And that was a real problem in those days. The fairies, they would get into your cabbage patch and ruin your crop. <laughs> They'd get in there and... Mm -hmm. They do fairy stuff. and What's fairy stuff exactly? Well, it involved a lot of wand mm -hmm. swirling around. And when that happened, the leaves would fall off. Sure. And then the fairy dust, that would contaminate the cabbage leaves. You'd have to boil them for several hours before you could consume them. But isn't uh, that what you do with cabbage anyway? No, that's that's why we do it today. It's we don't really need to. Oh, it's, it's just it's carried down through the generations. It's like, like the old ham story. Yeah, where yeah, you cut the ends off the ham. Why do you do that? I don't know. My my mom always did it, and then mom did it because she didn't have a pan big enough. Right. Same principle. Okay. Only well, with cabbage and I'm fairies. Really glad that we established that. What year was that? It was eighteen ninety six. 
It holds the distinction of being the first film directed by a woman, making it a pioneer achievement in gender representation behind the camera. And during that same year, the Edison Manufacturing Company released The May Irwin Kiss, which achieved remarkable financial success. I have it right here. Oh, my God. Have you seen it? No. Okay, this is 1896. This is what I thought of immediately. Oh, my goodness. That's probably porn for that day. Why are they... Why are they just smooshing their faces together? They don't really. Well, he had a big mustache, so. But they're like having a conversation with their faces touching. I wish I could. Uh... It's very weird. Oh, there they kissed there. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I, I would. I wish I could read lips. I know, I'd like to know what they were saying to each other. I would like to know that as well. Interesting. Anyway, go ahead. So this film became renowned for featuring the first on-screen kiss, if you want to call it that, in cinematic history, sparking both fascination and controversy. In fact, it triggered some of the earliest known calls for film censorship. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised by that. Because people were horrified. Can you imagine? They probably don't even know each other, let alone be married. In 1927, when Warner Brothers Pictures released The Jazz Singer, that was the first full-length feature film with sound. Right. Al Jolson. So you can see how with these few examples, how quickly the film industry and the cinema industry grew and the world was struggling to keep up. Well, yeah, if you put it in context of in the context of today, you're talking about late 1800s. And then Jolson's film, the first sound film, was 1929? 1927. 1927, so roughly 30 years. If we go back 30 years, it's 1993. That doesn't seem that long ago. Of course, I'm very, very old, so... But I know all of us can remember what we were doing 30 years ago. No, maybe not all of us. Eh. <clears throat> I can't remember what I was doing 30 years ago in some instances. Usually it was on the weekend, though, and I'd had a hard week. But if you mention the song that was in a top 10 position on the Billboard charts that was playing on the radio at that time, probably you could recall what was going on that weekend. Let's see. Just to test this theory, what were you doing the weekend that In a Big Country came out? In a Big Country by... By Big a, Country. In a Big Country by Big Country. Yeah. Uh, see, hmm, that would have been May 1983. That was the third single from uh, their debut album, uh, May 18. Okay, well, I can't be positive, but I'm fairly sure that that weekend I purchased a members-only jacket at a Chess King outlet <laughs> at Park Mall in mm -hmm. Tucson, Arizona. Yeah. Well, gosh, I've seen your collection of members-only jackets, so that could have been one of any number of weekends. Hey, the members-only jacket's making a comeback. Yeah, we saw one the other day. That was rad. Crazy. When movies started, they were very, very short. They were often called views. Um, and much like the train view that we've heard so much about, there was this idea that, you know, the train was going to come off the yeah. film screen. And it, most historians say that wasn't really a thing. People didn't believe that the train in that view was going to kill them. But it was very cleverly shot. So it did look as though the train was coming right at you. Well, I wonder if it's similar to the experiences that we have with uh, virtual reality and 3D. It's like our Oculus Quest 2, that plank challenge thing, mm -hmm. where you know you're not standing on a plank looking 100 stories down to the ground. Realistically, 
you understand that. Right. But your brain's going, well, get the fuck off this. <laughs> and I'm wondering if it's kind of a similar type of experience, just much more primitive technology. Yeah, maybe it just takes us as a society a little bit longer to become familiar with the concept. Maybe. Anyway, so theaters would play a few views, maybe some newsreels or as time went on shorts or cartoons. Theaters would open in the morning and start the showing. You could arrive at the beginning, the middle or the end. And if you missed some of your movie that you went to see, you just sit and wait for it to end and then start over again. And then you'd watch it in its entirety. Talk about spoiler alert. Right. Movies didn't have official start times. And as time went on, films got longer and sometimes there would be a live act in between. And most films would screen for a couple of days in a movie hall or a single screen theater. They would just be projected and it'd be on a loop and you could watch a double feature or maybe a triple feature. But people would just come and go as they pleased. And the coming and going of an audience during a film would drive me bananas. (laughs) Like, especially if it was a really intense part of the film and you're really focusing. And then all of a sudden the door swings open and people are coming in with their popcorn or whatever. So annoying. You get mad at me if my uh, even if my phone is silenced, if it just lights up and I get a text, you give me that look. It's distracting and rude. You don't need to be answering texts during a movie. But I wasn't answering it. I was just holding it in my hand and a text came in and my screen lit up. I knew you were going to answer it. All right. So I have a problem. (laughs) But you could go into a movie and stay there as long as you wanted. Like if there were three movies playing over and over and over again, you could just watch those three whole movies or whatever. Anyway, this all changed in 1960. Oh? Can you imagine why that might be the case? Um... It it had to be economically driven, I would think. Well, that's a great thought. It was psycho. It was psycho. So in 1960, Alfred Hitchcock directed Psycho. The screenplay was written by George Stefano, and that was based on the novel of the same name by Robert Bloch. That came out in 1959. So the book came out in 59, and Alfred Hitchcock was releasing the movie in 1960, which is bonkers to me. Hitchcock was dead set on this movie and its twists and turns not being spoiled. Yes. He sent an assistant all over the cities to buy as many copies of the book as possible so that when... Theaters were saying, we're going to be showing Psycho. People wouldn't go and then buy the book and ruin it for Alfred Hitchcock's masterpiece. Gotcha. He also held back the film from critics. It wasn't his interest that critics watch it first and tell you how good it was going to be. He did not want anyone spoiling this movie for the rest of the audience. Spoilers for Psycho, by the way, in case you haven't had a chance to see it yet. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing he was most insistent about was this laissez-faire coming in and out of the theater as you please. That would be just unacceptable. What if you came in just as the psychiatrist explains that Norman killed his mother or when Norman was shown on screen dressed his mother? Mm -hmm. Ruined. So Alfred Hitchcock said, absolutely not. Hitchcock appeared in newspaper advertisements instructing audiences to show up to the theater on time at a set time at the beginning. 
Surely, he said, you do not have your meat course after your dessert at dinner. Okay, that makes good sense. And in the context of Psycho, if you know how it ends, there's not much point in watching it. It's, it's like Sixth Sense. It wouldn't work. Hitchcock, along with MGM, got theaters to stop letting people see his movie. If they showed up late, that is. Is that where the whole anybody that arrives 10 minutes late cannot enter? Yeah. Is that, okay, that's where that came from. No one. This is one of the ads for the movie. No one, but no one will be admitted to the theater after the start of each performance of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. And there's a picture of him pointing at his wristwatch. And I imagine that created a lot of demand in and of itself. Right. And we've talked before about how appointment watching, you know, is such a big deal and it changes your perception of things and an exclusivity changes your perception of things. Mm -hmm. It is required, this is another ad, that you see Psycho from the very beginning. Surely you do not have your meat course after your dessert at dinner. You will therefore understand why we are so insistent that you enjoy Psycho from start to finish, exactly as we intended that it be served. We won't allow you to cheat yourself. Every theater manager everywhere has been instructed to admit no one after the start of each performance of Psycho. We said no one, not even the manager's brother, the president of the United States or the <laughs> Queen of England. God bless her. <laughs> it even says that in parentheses. <laughs> To help you cooperate with this extraordinary policy, we are listing the start times below. Treasure them with your life, or better yet, read them and act accordingly. Hitchcock was a genius on so many levels. Right. And the opening to Strangers on a Train is the most brilliantly shot piece of cinematography I have ever seen, where the first five minutes of the film is just one long shot with no edits. Just incredible. Yeah, I... Um in reading about this, uh, North by Northwest came out right before Psycho. And North by Northwest, we watched a few years ago. It was my first time. It was one of our classic movies and takeout nights, which are one of my favorite traditions that we do. And I loved it. I loved it. And so I can't imagine if you had seen North by Northwest and you were like, this guy knows what he's doing. This is going to be so exciting. I'm blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden there's all this hubbub about start times and you're like fucking just shitting yourself getting ready to go see this movie. I know I would. Once the movie started, the doors were locked and no one was to come in or out. It seems like a fire hazard. You would have to stand in line for the next showing or come back later. It was marketed as must-see and must-see on time. Psycho revolutionized movies and cinema by altering the horror genre, by introducing psychological suspense and a different level of intensity altogether. It's often described as the original slasher film. The infamous shower scene, for example, shocked audiences. Oh, yeah. It was graphic violence for the time, and the innovative editing techniques like fast motion reverse footage it defied this traditional style of film and traditional narrative structures it killed off the protagonist very early in the film which created this sense of unsettledness for an audience that had never seen that before poor janet lee 
Of course, Hollywood censors, again, had a terrible time with Psycho. They didn't like that there was a couple in bed together. They didn't like that the woman was just in her bra. They didn't like that Janet Lee was nude in the shower. They didn't like that there was a toilet flushing and that the focus of that shot was on the toilet. It wasn't like there was a toilet in another room and you heard it flush and no big deal. There was a toilet And the shot was of the toilet being flushed. And the water going down the toilet was obscene to some people. That's crazy. I remember reading or hearing somewhere. Of course, Psycho is filmed in black and white. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't get the fake blood to look real in the tub going down the uh, drain. Mm -hmm. So they used like Hershey's chocolate syrup. They did. Some chocolate syrup. Chocolate syrup. syrup. Yeah. Because it was black and white. So who knows? You know. Who's going to know? How would they know? And in different parts of the world, there were different parts of the movie that were seen as problematic. In New Zealand, for example, a shot of Norman washing blood or chocolate syrup, rather, off of his hands was seen as disgusting. Now you see that just on the street these days. In the UK, the British Board of Film Classification required cuts to visible nude shots and the removal of certain stabbing sounds. Okay. In Singapore, though the shower scene was left untouched, the murder of another character and the shot of Norman's mother's corpse were removed. Initially, in Ireland, the film was just banned. But the next year, a version was released missing some 47 feet of film. What? (laughs) I'm sure Hitchcock loved that. Right. Um, And even after that, an additional seven cuts were requested including a line where Marion tells Sam to put his shoes on, implying that his shoes and very possibly his trousers had been off. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. Marion's undressing, the shot of Marion's blood flowing down the shower. I mean, I can't even imagine what the film might have looked like with these edits. And it wasn't until 2020 that Universal Pictures released the uncut version on Blu-ray for the first time. That blows my mind. A lot of critics did not love this movie. One one critic called it low budget, which of course it was. So I don't see it really even how that's an insult. But uh, they just thought it was gratuitous. It didn't matter, though, because long lines formed outside theaters as people awaited the next show. It broke box office records and Hitchcock ultimately made more than million off the film, according to reports. The Village Voice wrote, Audiences responded as though trapped on a roller coaster through a spook house with a convulsive mixture of screams and laughter. People bolted for the doors and fainted in their seats. The mayhem caused one New York theater to call the cops and four others to call for censorship. For a few weeks, Psycho upstaged the presidential campaign. A decade and a half before Rocky Horror Picture Show, teenagers turned the showings into rituals, returning with their friends to watch it over and over and over again. So Psycho changed movies in a lot of ways. But my favorite is Showtimes. Talk about a roller coaster with twists and turns, sweetie. Right? That was great. Thank you. And of course, Janet Lee, the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis. Just a national treasure. I got my information from scienceandmediamuseum.org, MeTV, FarOutAJC.com, and No Film School. I'd like to thank our most recent sponsors, Adam and Jennifer. 
uh, Natalie and Kelly. We appreciate the support here at the Box of Oddities. It means more now than ever that we are living abroad. If you would like to support the Box of Oddities, you can become a member of the Order of Freaks by going to our website, theboxofoddities.com, and clicking on the proper link, and you'll get access to ad-free episodes. You'll also get access to our monthly Zoom meetings, which we're having one tonight as of the recording of this this episode, and so much more. TheBoxOfOddities.com Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you very, very soon. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts hi i'm neil and i'm ken and we are from the triviality podcast a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world plus tons of extra themed episodes if you want to improve your trivia game or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong then we're the show for you find triviality on all your favorite podcast apps but you know that because you're already listening to a podcast